Let's go to Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to turn to chapter 3. I'm going to go through um, the uh, gates of Jerusalem here. Of course, we know the setting here is uh, Jerusalem's gates and walls were broken down because of the destruction that uh, happened to Jerusalem through Nebuchadnezzar. The Israelites spend 70 years in uh, captivity in Babylon. And then Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia, made a decree to send them back. And that's what took place. And of course, they, before this time, before Nehemiah got to, the, to Jerusalem, they had already sent some groups back. They had already finished the temple. It took a lot longer than it was supposed to have taken. Uh, they, um, they stopped building because of opposition. It's always the way it is, you know. You can't expect to build your life without opposition. There's a lot of opposition. And uh, so you know whenever you step forward, there's a devil there wanting you to take a step back. And so he's constantly pushing. It's interesting with the sheep gate, we're going to look at that one today, um, which is the first gate that was rebuilt in the time of Nehemiah, of course, and that's for a reason, I think, uh, scripturally and and uh, typologically as well, uh, there's a reason why that is the first one. Wasn't the first gate that Jeremiah or that uh, Nehemiah had visited, actually on his trip uh, to to scout out the destruction of uh, uh, of uh, uh, Jerusalem, he first went to the the fountain gate, and the Bible says that he couldn't pass through because of the rubbish. That was there, and his beast could not make it through, and so there's no way he could pass through the gate of the fountain. Now, that's, that has meaning as well. The fountain gate was the gate that they would bring water out, and we know that's the gate where, of course, the water is the Word, the water is the Holy Spirit, so that basically the city of peace, the city of Jerusalem, became useless for the Lord. There was no way they could be used by God to bring water to the world, uh, to, to be fed internally they were everything was just totally totally decimated and that's the first thing that nehemiah noticed with with jerusalem but they didn't start building the fountain gate before they could build and get the fountain gate working again they had to go back to step number one and that was the sheep gate this is the first gate this is the important gate that must be built first and so we see that here in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse number 1. It says, Then the Elishev, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it and set up the doors of it, even unto the tower of Mia. They sanctified it unto the tower of Heniel. This, um, that's all I was going to say. Um, in Nehemiah 3.32, we also see the last verse of the chapter. And between the going up at the corner unto the sheep gate, repair the goldsmiths, and the merchants, and so what took place is they, in a very uh, methodical way, they started in the sheep gate, worked their way around the walls of the city, and ended up back at the sheep gate again. And so there's something very methodical in what the Lord was doing in rebuilding these gates. And so as I preach through this, I'm going to take that same methodical approach. We're going to go from the sheep gate to the fish gate. We're going to keep going around, and we're going to see what the Lord has for us as we begin to discover. Uh, the rebuilding of these gates. Um, this gate, uh, really right now there's a gate 
that they call the St. Stephen's Gate. St. Stephen's, my tongue is just not working. And uh, that's, of course, because of Stephen, the first martyr uh, that was martyred uh, under, under the church in, in the first century. And that's because Stephen was martyred at this gate, at the Sheep Gate. And I think that's significant as well. It's interesting that later on, uh, the Muslims, when they took over Jerusalem, they, they changed the name of that gate from the Sheep Gate to the Lion Gate. The Lion Gate. Now we know the Bible says that the devil is like a roaring lion and walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And I don't know exactly all the meaning of that, why they would change the sheep to a lion, uh, but they thought maybe the sheep was too weak. But that's the way sometimes people approach the Lord to think that somehow we've got to come to God like a lion. And I think that's what their religion teaches, you know, instead of coming to him like a sheep. And so they change it to the lion gate. Well, all I know is uh, the true lion one day will come, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he will enter into the gates of Jerusalem through the east gate, and then they'll truly know who the true lion is. Amen? Yeah. But uh, it's interesting as you see these different things play out and how the devil knows it. The devil knows it and he plays with people and he uses people to do things to even just slightly change the picture and the meaning of things because he just doesn't want us to catch the truth of this sheep gate here. Uh, of course, this gate was used uh, mostly by the priests and what they would do is they'd bring the sheep in to the temple through this gate. They would wash them and prepare them for the sacrifice at the temple. They didn't come in to live, they came in to die. And uh, so that's very significant when we're looking at the sheep gate. Um, so the first thing I want to look at, number one, is salvation and the gate. We know that John 10, 9 says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And so we know that Jesus Christ is our gate. He is all the gates. Amen. Uh, he is everything to us. Now, letter A, I'm looking at the duty of the sheep. Now, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Uh, this, the sheep that came in and were sacrificed, all were picturing Christ and what he was going to do on the cross of Calvary. Uh, so Nehemiah, years before, began working on that gate, uh, and that was picturing the Lord Jesus Christ. Day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away... So Jesus always entered Jerusalem by the sheep gate, except when he entered on his triumphal entry. He entered the city. Everything had him. He never just did something just because. Everything he did, amen? But he Jesus is the high... Built, the Bible says in Nehemiah 3.1 by the high priest and so have sam back <laughs> all right build the sheep gate in hebrews 9 verse 11 it says this the high priest of good things to come so that a high priest sins and now jesus of course is a is risen and is now in heaven for us we see that in revelation 1 17 it says when i saw him i felt he fear not i am the first and the last i am the, i am he that liveth I have the keys of hell and of death in Revelation 5, 6, the lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And so Jesus Christ, even to this day, is retaining the lamb. Why is that? Why do we need to see him as a lamb today? Why is it one day when we're in heaven that we'll, we will we'll want to see him as that lamb? It, it really has no bearing on our future. It has no bearing on... Uh, on what's going to happen to us. We're already saved. 
We already know Jesus Christ is the Lamb. He's already taken away the sin of the world. But why is it so important that one day we're all going to stand before God and we're going to see him as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Well, that's because he's going to bear the marks of his crucifixion for the rest of eternity. He is never going to lose that. We're forever will be reminded of what he did in coming into that sheep gate for us Amen. as our high priest. You know, that's amazing. He didn't have to. I mean, he didn't have to carry those scars. I mean, uh, we're not going to have scars in heaven. Aren't you glad about that? All your scars will be erased from your body. You'll have a glory, glorified body. You'll never be reminded that time you bumped your head or broke your arm or whatever. That's all gone. But Jesus Christ, he's not going to do this. He says, I'm going to retain my scars. I'm going to keep them visible so everybody, when they come to me and I extend my hand to them, they'll always remember what I did for them. Oh, that'll stir up that loyalty and love in our heart for our Savior for eternity, as we see him, for eternity. We'll always remember, wow, uh, I don't know how our memory is going to be in, in glory in the perfect age. I think we have a lot better memory than we have right now, that's for sure. But yet even then, he says, I still want you to see it over and over and over and over. Amen. So the sheep, the lamb that was slain. So I want to look also at the disposition of the sheep. The lamb pictured his submissiveness to death. That means the lamb was a submissive thing. Uh, you know, we know that they can be stubborn when the Lord uses the picture of the sheep in relation to us. The sheep are stubborn. They're not so smart sometimes, <laughs> amen? But that's not how the Lord is picturing himself with the sheep. See, just because in the Bible you have a metaphor being used doesn't mean you, you apply everything about that particular uh, person or that thing that it's reflecting to the character of that to every part in, in, in what it's trying to, to communicate. That means just because he says he's like a lamb led to the slaughter doesn't mean that Jesus was stupid like a lamb. Doesn't mean he was stubborn like a lamb. But what it does, it pictures his submissiveness like a lamb. The gentleman nature of the lamb. Amen. And so we got to think about those things. Now, when you take that picture and you refer to us, well, it should mean the submissiveness of the lamb, but it also has a little connotation of the stupidity of the lamb and the stubbornness. I remember one time I went to this guy's house and knocked on his door and we were soul winning back in our hometown. It was a farmer. I could see he had sheep. And every time I see somebody with sheep, I always ask them, you know, so tell me something, especially if they're a Christian. I say, let me know something that, that would help me understand better the, the metaphors that the Bible's using as far as we being the sheep. And of course, I wasn't expecting his answer. He just said, I don't know, you know, but all I know is sheep are stupid. <laughs> you know, I thought, okay, thank you very much. You know, I think you answered my question. Sheep need a shepherd. Amen. You can't live life on your own. You know, that's what they do. That's why so many times he talks about the lamb, the lamb that would go into the thicket and get caught in the thorns. You know, what's it doing there? Didn't it know it would get caught in the thorns? Well, yeah, it was probably told, don't go to the thicket. It was probably whacked a few times, don't go there, and it still went there anyways. That's very much like the human nature. How many times with your children do you say, don't touch that, and you just challenge them to touch it? Yeah. And then they touch it and they burn themselves. I told you so, you know. Uh, that's just the, the nature, our sin nature. But for Jesus Christ, the disposition was, a, was a, uh, a picture of submissiveness. And the submissiveness to death. In Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. So there's our picture. <laughs> there's us as the sheep. We've gone, our, everyone goes his own way. We just want to do our own thing. But he, the Bible says here, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. You ever seen somebody actually shear a sheep? What do the sheep do? Man, I'm surprised them. They grab them by the leg and they flip them over. <laughs> and this sheep just, you know, <laughs> just go along for the ride. You know what? That's what Jesus did. When they arrested him and they brought him to the cross, he, they just, he just let them handle him and put him however he positioned. He was, <laughs> they wanted him in and he just took it over and over and over and over again. That's the submissiveness. That's that disposition of that lamb that he's trying to get across to us here. So we're a sheep but in a different way than he is the lamb. <laughs> in a different way than he is a sheep, amen? But in saying that, I think he wants us to picture that aspect of a lamb as well. That's what he's trying to show us. That's what the sheep gate, I think, is trying to show believers today. And so there's this one uh, story of a man who worked at a slaughterhouse, and what they did is they slaughtered sheep. And so I guess they have places like this. I've never been to one. But at this particular place, they would just take a knife because sheep were easy to kill and they would just bleed them out and they would die. And so he went in on the first day and he, was, he went in and, uh, and, he came, and one person was uh, there with him. I forget the exact story, but he ran out of the room where he was supposed to kill this, this lamb and he says, I can't do it. I just can't do it. He had this knife in his I cannot kill this lamb. He says, when I brought that knife to his throat, the lamb licked me. How can I put a knife to the throat? He just couldn't bring himself to do it. See, that's Jesus Christ. You know, even though we brought the knife to his throat, he licked our hand. Wow. That should affect us. We shouldn't be able to just you know, do that and, and cut off our emotions like that. But you know what? That is a great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2 verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You know, for us, when, when we're going through trouble, we're not coming from a high position down to a low position. We're really just learning how to live within our low position. You know, we've never had that high place. We've never been uh, at the throne of glory. Jesus Christ has. He came from the highest point and emptied himself purposely to come to the lowest point. Not even to the point that you and I many times take. He, he came and he made himself as a form of man. But not just that, he also made himself a servant to man. And he took a step down. How many of us say, oh, I want to be a servant to man? <laughs> you know? Oh, I'm a man. We're all weak. We're all human. But thing is, he didn't just, wasn't just happy being a man. He says, I need to become more than that. I need to become a servant to men. Yeah. And not just any servant. He proved that when he went to the disciples and washed their feet. That was the lowest servant in the house. Yeah. That was the one who got the dirty jobs. Oh, you're the foot washer now. I'm glad you got on board. Now I've been promoted. And the new guy gets to wash the stinky feet. 
Jesus purposely took that position of, of servanthood and washed his disciples' feet. And you think, well, that'd be enough. He says, no, it's not. I'm not only going to become a servant, I'm going to humble myself to the lowest possible position, to the death position. Death. Even the death of the cross. Now, death is one thing, you know. Okay, I'll die, but how am I going to die? Let me pick, please, you know. No, no. He says, I'll, I'll go down, not only just to death. I'll take it one step further. I will die the death of the cross. There was no worse death. <laughs> there was no other thing in that time that could have been worse than what he went through. And he humbled himself and died for us in that place. That, my friend, is called, I, I think the word in the Greek is the kenosis or the self-kenosis. What that means is the self-emptying of Christ. Now, he didn't empty himself of divinity or his nature. He's always God. He's always been God. He'll always be God, and he can change who he is. Amen? That's what some people teach you sometimes in the, the new movements today, the manifest sons of God heresy and the different heresies that are out there within some of these charismatic churches, the Benny Hins, the Kenneth Copeland. They got some very whack doctrines. <laughs> but Jesus Christ didn't empty himself of his divinity. He has always been God. You can't change who you are. The Gnostics believe that he, 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 he separated from his divinity on the cross. And of course that's not true. But he kept it into check. He didn't use it when he could have. And he said he could have. I can call you know, 12 legions of angels. That's, that's an act of divinity. See, that's an act of a king like David. David had 12 legions of soldiers as his personal guard. He says, I can call more than 12 legions of, of angels to my side. So he's already the king, but he gave up that, that, that privilege so that he could die on the cross. Amen? But we know he still knew everything. We know he was still omniscient. He was omnipresent in many ways. I know he was in one place at a time, but he sure knew what was going on in other places. You know, he was omnipotent, all-powerful. All you have to say to the waves and the, the wind cease, and it just stopped. Because there's no power greater than his power. He showed all the attributes of God while he was yet in his body on earth. Amen? Amen. And just think about that. All of that power, all of that glory, he emptied himself just so he could die the lowest death of the cross for us. That's the sheep gate. The second thing I want to look at is the sanctification and the gate. Notice what it says here. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They sanctified it. And they set up the doors of it, even unto the tower of Mia. They sanctified it unto the tower of Haniel. Sanctified means to consecrate. It means to dedicate, to, to hallow, to proclaim, or to purify, or to set apart to God. This gate was sanctified because of the great spiritual purpose it held. There's no other gate that you'd see this happen where the high priest would sanctify it. But this initial gate, this important gate, had to be sanctified. You know, that just tells you that the Lord set apart the cross and the death of the cross for us. He did that. He, he consecrated it so that we could go through that gate and receive salvation. Amen? Christ's death for us fuels our motivation for him. 
This is our sanctification. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Look at that verse. You know what this verse is telling you? It's telling you because he died for you that your life ought to be totally consecrated and sanctified to him. Now, we, talk, we think that's extreme today. Well, that's an extreme position, preacher. I mean, come on now. I, I understand going to church on Sundays. <laughs> you know, Oh, this is far more than church on Sundays. That's why I'm really concerned about people that you know, they can't get out of just going to church one hour a week. They, they haven't seen this. They haven't been motivated. They haven't been sanctified by that sheep gate. They haven't seen the death that Jesus Christ gave for them at that sheep gate. Amen. They would have seen that this death was for you and that you deserve that. Then you would have turned around and says, well, then let me give my life for you. But most of our time, what we're doing is we're trying to, we're trying to provide for our life. We're trying to take all of the responsibilities of God upon ourselves. I, I want to find a life for myself. He never told you to find a life for himself. He will open up the doors for you. Don't take a thought for your life, the Bible says. Be careful for nothing. But so many people, they're so full of care and they miss the opportunities of God because they will not give their lives to the Lord. It's so true. <laughs> Folks, there's a reason why only 2 or 3% of the church body will do the work of God. Think about that. Now think about standing before Christ like that. After a verse like this, the love of Christ constraineth us. That means what's constraining you? What is holding you to that? What is making you more faithful to God than any other thing on this planet? It's got to be your love of Christ. Amen? If that love is gone, then I'm no longer constrained. That is the issue today. Our love has waned. Our love has waned. It says that he died for all, that, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. We shouldn't live to ourselves. Wow. To me, I'm saying, Lord, are you sure you mean this? Where's the qualifier here? <laughs> you know, is there something I can have for myself? You know, I, I think that we're, we're so fooled by the world and what we think it's doing for us that we really don't understand everything that God would do with our life if we would just put it in his hand. I can't imagine what, what would have happened if I wouldn't have surrendered to preach, if I wouldn't have given myself to leave home and to take my family to a place that I never knew, you know, whether it's in Kenora, whether it was back in Winkler, whether it was here, all the things I would have missed. Oh, I would have been probably successful in construction business. <laughs> oh, yeah, I would have made money. That's why, folks, I don't feel sorry for people that are crying about the money they're missing and so forth. Folks, that's not what your life is about. Yeah. I think if you would just lay your life upon the altar of the Lord, you would find that he would take far better care of you than you are taking care of yourself. You're driving yourself crazy. You're driving yourself, your head's against the wall over and over. You can't, you can't find your way out. Amen. Many times I have to work on that in my own life. 
I think, oh, Lord, you know, I, I don't know how we're going to make these bills. He says, have, I been, have they been met so far? Well, yeah, Lord, but it's, it's getting tough. Well, have I taken care of it? Well, yes, Lord, but, 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 but. And all of it's imagination. It's all imagination. If I were to ask you today, all oh, these big decisions you're making to, to uh, go find what the world has for you and why you're doing it, it's probably because you think something's going to happen, but it hasn't happened. That's how the devil manipulates you. He makes you think, I better be on top of this. He makes you think, I got to do this. And you know what? He slowly pulls you away from the things of God. And he knows very well that if you would just stay true to God, that all of those things that you think you need would be given to you. But he wants you to carry it. He wants to wear you down. Amen? Boy, I tell you. He bore his cross for us. Should we not bear our cross for him? I mean, that's a quaint saying, but is it truth? Is it real? Is that something that we really believe is the truth? You know, is that just a quaint preaching saying? Something the preacher says to make a sermon good, (laughs) you know? No, it's got to become reality. It's got to become practical. Amen? It's got to be a part of our life. That's why Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, and he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily. That means that cross isn't just fixed to your back. Just like with him, he says, I chose to keep this cross. I I am enduring the cross. Every cross that you can carry, you can put it down. Think about that. We all have a cross that the Lord has tailor-made for your life, but it's up to you whether you carry it. Because you can choose not to carry it. You can choose to set it aside. Many Christians do that. It's just too hard. It's too tough. I don't know if I can trust God enough to provide and all these different things. And that's why we don't have preachers and missionaries going to the mission field. That's why we don't have people surrendering anymore, uh, you know, to be used by God. Because, oh no, you know, the inflation's so high and, you know, it's real tough these days and all these kind of things. (laughs) That's all a part of the cross. All those financial strains is a part of your cross, you know. You understand, preacher, the boss offered me this much. If we would just stop going to church on Sunday and just work through Sunday, I know they will offer you the world. They will. It's interesting. My, my son was telling me this week, of course, he's taking a position at, at Walmart. He says, I, I don't work on Sundays. I don't work on Wednesday nights. And, but he tries to be faithful in all the other times of the week. You know, but he had someone just start, and that person, it was a young person, went up to the boss and said, uh, you know, one thing I'm requesting, I, I want to I start on Sunday mornings. Well, why do you want to start on Sunday mornings? Because then I don't have to go to church. I guess his mom and dad make him go to church. So he chose. He was choosing. <laughs> There's a man who doesn't want to bear the cross. Wow. Well, there's probably a salvation. I don't know what kind of church it was, and I don't know what's going on there. But do you know something? Many Christians have that same attitude. Almost was like, oh, good, I don't have to go today. I got a little tickle in my throat. Oh, yeah, I get to stay home. It should grieve you to not be with the people of God. 
should grieve you. If it doesn't grieve you, there's something wrong in our hearts, you know. And we all can get there. We can all have that same issue in our heart, you know. We can all, you know, feel sometimes downtrodden in a way where I don't want to see anybody. I'm glad to be at home and blah, 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 you know. I was telling the guys even soul winning. We had 10 people show up for soul winning on Thursday night. That was a good time. We had a lot of fun until the hail came down, you know. But, you know, I was telling you, you know, there's probably not a time that I don't get up and go soul winning where it just crosses my mind for a second. Oh, you know, it's tough. You know know how it is. The flesh. The flesh has to give that little extra extra cry and, don't like this. Now, that's where the spirit kicks in. Yeah, but this is what I need to do. This is what the Lord has commanded me to do. I'm not letting the flesh dictate my, my night. <laughs> Amen. And I said, there's, there's never a time where I've even gone through a battle like that and I was faithful and I went anyways where at the end of the night, I did not look back and say, boy, am I glad. Amen. Where the spirit was rejuvenated. You know, the flesh is always kicking against it. You know, but when you go... And by the end of the night, you just seen, I was looking at all the faces as we were leaving. Even with all the hail and the ladies got caught in the rain and they had one umbrella for all six, I don't know how many there were. They were just huddling. We were looking for them and we were driving around. They were hiding underneath this thing, you know. And you know what, there were, you know what was the same thing about all of them? They all had this huge smile on their face. It was like, oh, shouldn't have came today. It was a bad decision. Not one. Same with the men, smiling, hailing, (laughs) raining, smiling, doing the will of God. I bet you they were happier that night than you were if you weren't there. I guarantee you that. (laughs) Amen? Not to make you feel guilty, but you should. (laughs) We are a most ungrateful bunch many times. Christ gave everything that he could to save us. And we cannot find time to give him a couple hours out of our week to learn of him. You know, like 168 hours in your week. It's 168, 165. I always get confused. I think it's 68. 24 times 7. What is that? 7 to 4. It's 8, I think. <laughs> think about that. 168 hours. How much time do you give to allowing the Lord to minister your heart through the preaching of his word. How many hours of the 168? Right? Some people, one hour is too much. They already want you to stop. One hour. One out of 168 is too much, preacher. Too much. Some people, they take, I'll take two hours. Some people, three. I think at least we ought to give them a tenth. <laughs> You ought to listen to 16 hours a week. No, I'm just kidding. You know what I mean? You understand that? Now you add up all your me time. All the time you sit there and just, you know, watch TV or look at your phone or, you know, just spend time doing what you want to do. You know, that's the only time. All the other things, work, sleep, um, eating, uh, devotion time, family time, All those things the Lord wants you to do. And there's commands for it. Church time. There's commands for it. And like I say, it's never a matter of you saying one, two, well, this is first, this is second, this is third. If you've got that kind of priority system, you're a messed up Christian. You're unbalanced. 
Because what you're going to do is every situation, you're, you're going to always, you're always going to evaluate with that particular one. And I know what number one's going to be most of the time, practically, your family. Is there a time when your family shouldn't be number one? When God wants your time, God's number one. Guess what? When you need to go to work, work's number one. You know, there's a lot of families that keep their, their, their men from going to work effectively because they're so needy and the family is struggling and the man's got to constantly uh, be manipulated and, and messed around because they don't let him just go to work and work his eight hours on the job. Or 10 hours, whatever it is. That eight hours was number one. In my home, even I've got a number one work time. You don't come to my office and tell me to go get milk and you know, change a diaper. That was a long time ago. <laughs> we were talking about changing diapers today. I said, no, I'm done with that. If I have grandkids, I'm sorry. Shelly, you're going to be changing all the diapers, not me. Amen. I'll do what Seth does. He's very logical. He just brings them to the tub with a sprayer. <laughs> <laughs> he'll be the favorite uncle <laughs> anyways give him a couple hours give him some hours every week think about that how many hours do I give him how, many, how much preaching time do I give my heart every week you know you need a lot of preaching today if people that have more preaching time they'd be a lot better off I'll guarantee you that it's different than your Bible reading time don't tell me I read my Bible I don't need preaching sorry that's a completely different thing altogether Reading your Bible and preaching are two different things. And you need them both. And there's a number one time for this, but there's a number one time for that. Number one. You know the only thing that God did not give a number one? Is your time. You know what he said? Deny yourself. Not once did it say deny work. Not once did it say deny sleep. Not once did it say deny Eating, unless you're fasting, of course. <laughs> but he says, deny yourself. I want to tell you something. Take your 168 hours and find out how much is for you. That's where you start cutting time. That's where you start changing your, your balance in your life. A lot of people that say, oh, I'm going to, I go to church too much. We got to spend more family time. I had one person accuse me of this. You just take too much of my family time. I said, okay, that's what spurred me on for that message. I said, okay, if that's true, then I need to find out. And I went down to it and I started studying the scripture and went into our week schedule and said, okay, am I taking too much time from God's people? Then I realized, nope. Then, I, then it dawned on me, you know what the problem is? Self-time. I think by the end of the week, I forget what I came up with, and that's according, like your schedule may be a little more fluid or different because you got different things involved in your life. I think it was like 18 to 20 hours of self-time. That's, that's apart from sleep time, apart from work time. That's where you start cutting. Amen? I don't have enough time for my family, then you take away from self-time. Not church time, not work time, not those other times. Those are a lot of number one times that you need to leave in their place. And I have that as a picture of being a wheel, all the number ones, and the center is Christ. You want to be a balanced tire. You want to be a balanced wheel. 
The other day I brought my van in. We thought it was a universal joint. It was actually the tire was out of balance. It was a brand new tire. They just balanced it and it got out of balance within a couple of weeks. I said, how did that happen? He said, I don't know. But that's what happens. It doesn't take long. All of a sudden you feel a little wobbly <laughs> in your Christian life. If you're wobbly, I'll tell you what, you don't start cutting the church. You don't start cutting your job. You don't start cutting your eating. You don't start cutting your sleeping. You start cutting yourself. I mean, cutting your time, not yourself. <laughs> oh, boy. Get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Oh, there's one thing we need today. It's learning of Christ. This kind of stuff tonight where we talk about this, you need this. I've heard all these verses before. I know you have. But there's something about the Holy Spirit of God taking those verses and just popping them right into place when you need them. Amen? The sheep gate reveals to us the principle of death in the believer's life. And that's what we need to learn. The denial of self, the death to self. Um, I don't have a lot of time here. Let me move quickly. I'll just go to Stephen here in Acts chapter 7. Of course, this is very much tied to the sheep gate. He died right there. This is where his body was pummeled with stones. Right at that sheep gate. He probably heard the, the, the sound of the lambs in his ears while he was dying. You know, you know I'm sure he's saying, you know what? That's what this is about. I can die today because I've died a long time ago. The reason why he could take those stones and give his life like that and see Christ up in the heavenlies and the reason why he could forgive these people that were so wickedly mean, so wickedly mean, gnashing on him with his teeth. In fact, it says here in verse 54, it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. See, because the word of God cuts to the heart. Like I said this morning, it's like a sword. And they didn't want that sword. They, they wanted to be comfortable in their complacency, comfortable in their religion, you know? They were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth of anger. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. In fact, he, he wanted them to know who he saw. They all heard him. I see the Son of Man. All these Pharisees that were mad and gnashing their teeth, they saw him say, look, I see the Son of Man. I see the throne of God. Oh, wow. There's something that would have got your attention. That should have been it. Maybe I'm a little too deep here. <laughs> you know, Maybe I'm not on the right side of this. But instead of realizing that, the Bible says they stopped their ears. I'm not listening to this. I don't want to hear about your Jesus. I don't want to hear about the throne of God. And they shut that right out. And they ran upon him with one accord all together and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul, it's the Apostle Paul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Whew. 
Boy, that day he went out to preach. He went out to preach because he had a love in his heart for his people. And he saw that his people were going to hell. And all he wanted to do is show them what the Bible says. He just wanted to say, this is what, this is what our, don't we, haven't you read this? You recite it, you memorize it, but you don't know what it's saying. And they didn't want to hear. And he gave himself, he gave his life right by that sheep gate. The sound of the lambs. <laughs> See, Jesus came into that gate. Stephen laid at that gate. I think the Lord wants us to lay at that gate. I think he wants to, us to hear the bleeding of that lamb. <laughs> and say, you know what, I need to deny myself. I, I, I'm tired of living for myself. I'm tired of making decisions just for me all the time. And it's costing me so many things for God. Because I'm not giving my life to him. After all he's done, Paul died to himself. In the scriptures, we can see this over and over again. Of course, he held the coats of those that stoned Stephen. He was right there. He saw it. And I believe that was the beginning, really the, the start of a great conviction in Paul's life, in Saul's life. That's why when he met Jesus, he says, Saul, Saul, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He says, I've been trying to get your attention. I've been trying to steer you, Saul, but you're, you're kicking back at me. You're, you're, you're like that oxen that doesn't want to do what the farmer says to do. And even though the, the pricks behind you that keep you from kicking the farmer are causing you to bleed and hurt, you're still kicking. You're under conviction. You're hurting, Saul. And he was trying to brown that out with his vigor and his zeal to go get more Christians and to put them in jail. But the Lord caught him that day, right on that road to Damascus. And he says, Saul, who are you? I'm Jesus. I'm the one that you're persecuting. Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine what dawned on him that day? And in his heart, he probably said, I knew it. When Stephen looked up to heaven, he said, there's a son of man. This is who he was. And since that day, I've been kicking against the pricks. I've been fighting against the conviction of God and God's hand pulling at me. And I, I'm not listening to him. I'm not dying to myself. But that day he did. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily, he says. Every day he got up in the morning, he says, I'm dying today. You ain't got to do that. <laughs> I would tell you, if you would do that, you wouldn't have no personal problems. Your personal problems are all because of you. All too much me time. Too much self time. If we would just die, guess what a, guess what a dead man feels? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> you, know? you don't feel nothing about yourself there. You're not concerned about how much you eat when you're dead. You know, any of those things. That is just, you just give yourself into the hands of God and say, Lord, you're taking care of all of this. That is, the, that is the heritage of the servants of God. Any man that's ever been used of God has to walk that road. And that's why many don't walk the road. Apostle Paul did. Paul knew that he had to die to his weaknesses of the flesh. He knew he would have to learn not to attack when he was attacked. Just like Jesus wouldn't attack. Just like that lamb. Philippians 3, he talked about 
the things that he to die to. It says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, I, uh, I, if any other man thinketh he hath whereof he might, may, may trust in the flesh, I the more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and the Hebrew of Hebrews. See, he understood when he was talking about in Romans to these Jews that were trusting in their circumcision. He says, that was me. I was putting great stock in who I was, in my tribe, and how I was born, and I was a, a, a the great tribe of Benjamin in, in Israel and so forth, and I was a, a zealous Pharisee. I was all these things. And yet he comes down to it, but those things that were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. He counted them dung. Why do you have to count them dung? Isn't it enough just to say, okay, let's just forget those things? But he went a step further. He said, I'm not only just going to try to forget these things, <laughs> I'm going to look at them and call them dung. <laughs> Amen. Why? Why did he have to change that? He had to change in his mind how he valued his his personal upbringing, his family line, all these things. He had to turn it into dung so he could die to it and start living for the Lord. Many of us, we're getting up every morning, we're picking up the same value from the stuff that we've had in our life and then we lay it down again at some point when we hear the right message. But if we, if we would consider it dung <laughs> and manure, if the value of that would become manure to us, how many of you would want to pick it up again? How many of you want to carry dung in your wallet? Dung in your jacket? <laughs> dung on your head? Say, oh, I'd never have dung on my head. And that's why Paul never went back. He never went back. He's like, count them all loss. It's not just, oh yeah, it's not really worth a whole lot, so we'll just set it aside today. No, it became dung to him. He's if I would take that up, it's like putting dung on my head. <laughs> Think about it. Christ died to self, we know that. Saw that in Matthew 26, 37, he took with him Peter and to the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul exceeding sorrowful, even unto death, tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed and saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the words, Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now. And take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Not my will, but thy will. It's interesting, when we went to Israel, we went to what was called the Nazareth village. And they have a recreation of a village at the time of Christ in Nazareth. We were there in Nazareth at this village 
We were there at this vineyard. We were seeing all the village and how it would work, how they would do, make their tools, and we'd see the animals and how they would farm. We'd see how they'd plant their crops, and all these things came to light on the, 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 the parable of the sower and how it fell upon the stones and the good ground because this was all within a short distance because they would be on grades like this. You'd have a path and you'd have a place where they would actually grow the crop and then you'd have a path beside it and then you'd have a place where they'd throw the stones that they had to clear away uh, because of the, uh, you know, getting the seed into the, the dirt and so forth. So when they took one handful of seed and they went like this, it fell on all of those things on the good ground, on the rocks, on, on the thorns, on the thistles, all in one throw. Interesting. But it's interesting because he brought us into the wine press. And what they do with that wine press is they take the olives off the trees and so forth and they, they put it in and, and they, they bring it through a press a process of three presses. So at first what they do is they put it in, they put, apply the pressure, and this thing's about probably about 20 feet long, and I guess you would call it a fulcrum, right? And so what happens is it's a big, uh, uh, what would you call it, a pole or a piece of wood that's heavy, and they would put the olives on one end of it, and the weight of that fulcrum would fall upon that olive, so they would take it, and the weight of that would just push down and would squeeze all of the oil out of that olive. And for every batch of olives, there would be three presses. And every press that they would put upon those olives, there would be a different quality of oil that they would use for different things, up to the most expensive press. See, when Jesus was in the garden, three times, he was being put in the press dying to himself another press (laughs) you know some of us we feel a little pressure we want to run away from god i want to do do it myself not not your will lord my will be done (laughs) i want to tell you something he's going to put you through presses in your life and each one of those presses you got to come back to him say lord uh, if it's possible that this pressure can be taken from me uh, so be it lord but if not then i'm willing to endure And then the Lord puts the pressure on that huge post, all the weight of that with the fulcrum on there. And I don't know what the pressure was, but it's a huge amount of pressure that they put against it to drain all of the possible oil out of the olives. Nothing left. By the time those three presses are done, there's nothing. That's what the Lord wants. Some people after the first press, they'll run away. Oh no, not, my, not your will, my will be done. Maybe I can handle one in the second time. No, it's too much. Well, I've already gone through this. I'm not going, you know, you understand in your life there's going to be many breakings. Well, the Lord broke me only once. <laughs> only once. I, I thought after the first breaking in my life that that was good enough. <laughs> Lord, Thank you for that press. I give you glory for it. Thank you very much. I'll take what I've learned and go on and use that for your honor and glory. He says, well, until next time. Then he put me through another one. Oh, man. Sometimes those presses are very hard. (laughs) 
And every time they test you as to whether you're going to continue on for God's will or not. But I'll tell you, the more pressure he has on you and the least that you have in you, the more quality that oil that comes out of it is. You see, if you don't let him have that third breath, you're not going to give out in your life what could be given out. And that's why when Nehemiah went to that fountain gate, he couldn't get through. Because the sheep gate was broken down. People were not willing to die. They were not willing to follow the Savior's example. They were not willing to become that lamb, you know. It was a prideful city. Oh, we even look in the book of Revelation how it talks about Jerusalem being spiritual Sodom and Egypt. And here it was supposed to be a city of peace. You know, that's what God wants from you. Let him press you. There's going to be many presses in your life. Don't give up, you know. The Lord knows the pressure you can handle. He, there's, no, there's no temptation taking you, but such as common to man. But with the temptation, the Bible says, He is faithful. He has given you a way to escape. Amen? And that escape is exactly what Jesus did in that garden. It wasn't run away from the pressure. It was giving the Father His will. Lord, you let your will be done. That was the escape. That was the way He could bear it. Because he knew it was his father's will. Amen? Let's bow our heads. I know we're here tonight and perhaps you're here and you're... I think most of you have made a decision to receive Christ as your Savior. I don't know. You have to ask yourself whether you've actually come through that sheep gate. Whether you've come through the door jesus christ or whether you've been coming through doing your own thing my own will or maybe you're already inside the city and you're saved and you're looking at that gate and you know that there's a pressure there is a cost there's a price on the christian life you can hear the lambs bleeding you can say you know what the lord gave us the example of submissiveness to death death to self Maybe you've just been living too much for yourself and you're forfeiting God's will. Forfeiting His will. Can I tell you, at the end of your life, if you forfeit God's will, anything that you gave in exchange for it, you are going to look at with disdain. You're going to say, it was garbage. I should have counted it dung, but I didn't. I kept taking it back up again and putting it in my pocket when I should have counted it, but dung.